0: My name is Andrew McAllen. I'm a musician and athlete who geeks out on fashion, art, and great food. I spent time working with elite performers, repairing instruments for major symphony musicians, training for marathons, and designing wardrobes from everyone from freshman college students to big city lawyers. Trequartista is the Italian word for playmaker, and is used to describe a particularly creative role on the soccer pitch, typically behind the central striker. And as the musical trequartista. I aim to kickstart conversations about topics and areas that I think are underrated, under-discussed, or particularly important to a sustainable, high-octane life. This is the Musical Trek Artista, the podcast. Good morning, everybody. Um, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I feel a little weird because it's been so strange um, doing only one episode a month and I started to think that maybe this is a little too infrequent but I'm not really sure Uh, but because like there's so much space now that it's summertime I'm thinking pretty seriously about doing more episodes and I'd love to know what y'all think Um, but I'm thinking about doing um, an episode every two weeks or going back to even like an episode every week it's kind of just like a cleanup of what's going on in my life, but also, like, some of the stuff that I'm thinking about. Because I came into um, a really interesting uh, realization this last weekend when I was at the Midwest Regional Tubi Euphonium Conference. And that's that uh, I've had a lot of thoughts that other people have had and have had difficult time putting words to. And so I feel like articulating some more of those um, and trying to codify them here on the podcast to kickstart the conversation because that's literally the point of it would be extraordinarily powerful. Uh, and so, as I sit in my super noisy apartment trying to record this, uh, I think that's going to be kind of the plan going forward. I'd also I'm. I have a plan to get more guests on the podcast. This stuff's just been kind of weird as far as scheduling. And um, the next episode I have coming out on, like, what the grind of the summer is like um, will probably illustrate a little more of what I have going on behind the curtains to try to, like, um, maintain my own levels of mental sanity, but also, like, in order to try to have a compelling amount of uh, stuff going on in my life that I feel like I'm producing, and, um, also relaxing, and, like, you know, making money and stuff, because, like, you gotta live indoors and eat food, um, so there's just kind of a lot going on, but, um, uh, I've been thinking a lot more about like why I wanted to do the podcast in the first place. And it's been pretty fascinating because like what it boils down to is I used to listen to the radio a lot when I was like 7 years old and I thought because my friend's dad host was the host at the radio station. And I thought he and the guys on the radio were, like, the coolest dudes ever because, I mean, it's, like, local radio in this small Midwestern college town, and they would, like, have a cooking show where it was, like, a comedy show, and, like, one of the guys was, like, the most horrendous cook of all time and like literally in the commercial for it, there was a clip from one of the episodes where the guy said, this is so horrible, I wouldn't feed it to the squirrels in my backyard. And I remember thinking that was the funniest thing ever. And I used to and listening to music on the radio a lot too. And so I have kind of an idea of um, the direction I'd like to take the podcast. And I just really need to figure out the best way to start to curate that. But it's, um, I want to do lots more guests I want to bring in a music component so we can, um, if stuff is public domain, host it in the podcast or at least provide links to places where you can watch it um, or listen to it. Um, but talk about preferred recordings, um, interesting pieces they've played, why they're so compelling, why they made some of the choices that they made. Uh, because that's those are questions that I find pretty interesting and I think y'all will find pretty interesting too. And then we can have an occasional episode where I reflect on what's going on in my life and having, um, have time where Andrew pontificates about like some interesting thing he's thought of that everyone will absolutely discredit right away <laughs> because um, pontification is not fact. Um, but I find patterns. That's what I do. Um, that's part of my life. But so getting into um, today's episode... Today I wanted to talk about my experience at the Midwest Regional tuba Euphonium Conference, which was in Lexington, Kentucky, at the University of Kentucky, hosted by the amazing Matt Hightower. Um, who, to be honest, like this is this is like the best tuba conference I've ever been to. It was really quite interesting, and I'm I don't know how much the pandemic played into like the joy of people coming back out to, like, really do tuba and euphonium in a pretty sizable capacity. Especially given that, like, um, I know there were uh, one or two other conferences this year that were not super well attended. Especially in tuba and euphonium. But um, very much similarly to Midwest um, this last fall, people were really excited to be back live and um, really to engage and talk with stuff and. Uh, do the art thing and be around other people in our industry. And it was really powerful. Um, I met so many people. um, And like some people I had known before, others that like I knew from social media that I got to meet more in person. um, People that I had a million mutual friends with, but had never seen before and um, got to chat with. And um, it was really interesting, like, especially having lived some life and gone to um, graduate school since uh, really the last Tuba Conference that I went to. Um, feeling how much I've leveled since then and how I'm really starting to run in between like the, um, the hot shots and the young professionals and um, amongst like the collegiate professors. It was a very interesting place to be in. Um, but so uh, th- this is probably the most engaging Tuba Conference I've been to and I think a big portion of that is because normally there's an incredible disparity in the quality of recitals on a tuba conference. Um, Even at the 2019 iTech, which might have been, uh, before I'd gone to this one, the best tuba conference I'd been to, um, I mean, when you have virtuosi like Sergio Carolino and Roland Sampali just like absolutely shredding through their stuff, and like all of the most famous tuba and euphonium players in the world are like casually walking around... um, this university and you're like oh my gosh is that Demondre Thurman like over there that's so wild Wah! or um, yeah, you, you never know really really know who's going to show up to the iTech and so it's kind of a really magical experience to see all of these titans of the industry just chilling around um, this felt like that but a little different um, and as much as like the iTech normally has these amazing high points it also has some pretty incredible low points um, normally I would expect, uh, like, uh, this is an objective and fairly cynical view of um, a tuba conference. Like, th- for every recital, that's like an 8 or a 9 out of 10. There's probably one that's a 2 or a 3 out of 10. And every once in a while, you find some stuff in between. But there's normally a lot of very high-quality ones and very low, high low amount of low-quality ones. Um, but this Midwest conference was the first... Uh, conference I'd been to where the worst recital I went to was a 7 out of 10. And that's most of what I did the whole week. Um, I, I mean, I, like I tried some horns and I went to some master classes, but broadly speaking, like every recital I went to was incredibly polished, was really clean, was pretty compelling. Um, none of them were too long. Oh man, it was, it was a real treat. And uh, it was it was really exciting. And just what I needed to have a little more of a push for some excitement going into this summer. Because there's a lot of stuff in my personal training and my personal playing uh, that I want to uh, get better at. And um, I've been working on my efficiency of my playing and stretching um, the quality of my range pretty dramatically over the last year. But I've really felt like I've figured out a path now to start working on that. Um, so the project that I'm doing this summer is I'm working on a different uh, fundament- like from somebody's fundamental routine every day so um, se- I have seven fundamental routines I've got um, the bra- the brass gym um, uh, the Joe Alessi method, I have my teacher Scott Teggy's method, I have DeMondre's packet I have Aaron Tindall's packet and I have somebody else's too um, uh, oh Brian Bowman's Um, And so, like, being able to go through one one day, one the next day, one the next day, one the next day, one the next day, um, while hitting all the different things in a bit of a different way, I feel like is going to really train my brain to do things efficiently and differently, Uh, which is extraordinarily powerful because you want to, in as much as you need the similar stimuli, you need a change in stimuli, too. When I was training for the marathon, a lot of people I spoke to just thought I would run um, long distances all the time, and that's not the case. Um, you do one big run a week to remind you what a long race is like, and then you do some medium runs in the week to just remind your body like, hey, we need to be able to do this, but like not to an absolutely crazy degree. And then um, you have a recovery run and uh, sprints. And sometimes you um, do short runs at a really big pace, and sometimes you do uh, long runs at a much slower pace, like slower than you'd normally run at, even if it, even though it's a longer, a longer distance. And that's really powerful because you can tell your body that all of these things are things you can accomplish, and then you take it all away at the end, and then allow for this explosive moment on race day where you, your body is used to running forty miles a week, and suddenly going into race day, it's only run six, and then your body's like, "This isn't normal. We have so much energy. We've like we're so effectively recovered. Like you, something's gonna blow up, and then." Uh, you go run 26.2 miles and then feel amazing and beat your time, and it's incredible. Um, and now that I talk through that, I'm really thinking about doing another one this fall. I found, I just found it very, it was very purposeful and very powerful to run the marathon, and I'm interested in running another one for the, all of those reasons. It was just so, it was so interesting and so compelling. Um, and I've really gotten off topic. But so all of this is to say, like, being able to train with intensity and intentionality, as I've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, is, like, is extraordinarily powerful. And that's what a lot of people at this conference talked about in their master classes. So um, uh, I got to meet... Dan Parentoni on a much more personal level this time. I, I mean, I've met him in passing a number of times before because, like, you see Mr. P at a conference and you say, hi, like, <laughs> this this is what we do. Um, but it was really interesting to be able to talk with him specifically about, like, the efficiency of my tuba playing and watch him teach um, a lot of really exceptional young tuba players through uh, the stuff they're, like, the rep they're working on right now and the stuff that they played for this uh like the solo competition and so one of the things he brought up is a lot of people never really learn how to sing through their music with some conviction and they spend too much time listening to the recordings and this is a very powerful idea because uh what he's really getting at is that if you can't uh sing the piece for yourself, you haven't really cognated what it's like to perform your interpretation. And uh, as much as a lot of people's interpretations of music uh, can be very powerful once they're codified in recordings, I mean, like, when Demandre records anything, it becomes a definitive example of that piece, because he's the GOAT. Uh, But like, or at least now he is. Um I mean obviously Brian Bowman is will always be on the Mount Rushmore of euphonium players but my personal opinion right now is that Demondre is um is levels <laughs> kind of above everybody but anyway um but like just because uh his recording exists doesn't mean it's and now the only recording of this um I mean in some cases it kind of is because like I don't know anybody else who's recorded The Barfield in that same capacity, but like just because Demondre has recorded it doesn't mean Demondre's interpretation is the only interpretation, and I think he'd very much agree with that. Like uh because the the power of being able to uh pursue music performance as a creative career and not a replicative career is that there are different ways of interpreting these composers music. Um and whether that composer likes it or not, that can be very powerful. And as a composer, like, for me, it's it's very powerful to have a certain amount of vagueness in the music that I write because I want every performance to be different. If I'm being so specific that every recording of my piece sounds the same, I'm not allowing, not, not only am I not allowing my performers to be very expressive or very interpretive and express their own creative sides, um, in their performance of my music but I'm also like doing a disservice to them in that like people are showing up and basically knowing exactly what they're after um and then they're just listening to a recording for a name rather than um, the qual not just the quality of sound of that person or the difference in sound of that person but difference in interpretation which can be extraordinarily powerful. I think about um, something Jeremy Wilson said to me is that it's uh, when he has a student who's looking at rep um, and listening to recordings, uh, especially if it's the first time they've played that piece, uh, he tries to send them after people that are a little off the beaten path, that you don't always hear about, but that are exceptional musicians, because that's where you get the really cool interpretations. And you have this understanding of, like, oh, I don't have to play everything, like, my shoes are tied a little too tight. Like, there can be some flexibility, and I can take some risks here. And I and I think he would back me up on this. I can't say for sure, but I, I think you're behooved to take risks, especially when you're an undergraduate or a graduate student. Because you're at a place where it's incredibly safe to take creative risks like that, and nobody's going to, like, excommunicate you from... Uh, <laughs> ITEA or something because like you, you played the Vaughn Williams tuba concerto in with like all of these crazy interpretations I mean but that said it, it, it's uh, it shows an artist to be able to wear different hats and this is something my teacher Scott Teggy and I talk about a lot is the difference between solo performing and extra performing and in the grand scheme of things like um there's There's not a difference at the core of the musicianship, there's a difference in understanding what your role is. Because when you're a solo artist, all bets are off. You can actually get away with just about anything. And that's really powerful. But when you're taking a military or a military band audition or like an orchestra audition, like you need to understand your role in the music, and this is where I find that like more people should take classes about writing for band or writing for orchestra, and nobody really offers those in in a very like a performer focused capacity. When I think they really could, Uh, but uh the orchestration class I took this spring with Steve Taylor was very much engineered that way because it's like one part musicology class and one part orchestration class in that we rather than saying like this is clarinet and here's how you write for clarinet and here are good excerpts for clarinet now write a piece for clarinet we worked through the history of the orchestra with um and tried to orchestrate pieces by composers uh from reduction so like for example we started with like bach cantatas and we would work with like the baroque orchestra bach would have had available to him and then we moved to mozart and we orchestrated pieces of mozart from reductions of mozart that uh with instruments mozart would have had available so we all had to learn how to write for natural horn and then we got trombone when we went to beethoven and we worked with the orchestra as it evolved to have a really like applied and organic understanding of like what are the innovations as they're happening and how can we go from very clear, very simple orchestral textures to the complexity of modernity and why is it powerful to be able to create some of the things that we're creating now and how do we leverage those in a way that are expressive and powerful? And what can we learn from uh, previous generations? And and Because if you really want to stand on the shoulders of giants, you need to understand the history and the complexity and the style that they wrote in. Because there are pieces of those that you can leverage in your own art making. I will eternally have great admiration for Igor Stravinsky and Claude Debussy because there are so many innovations that they made with regard to orchestral writing in particular. And the quality of their musical compositions is extraordinarily compelling. But one of the things I really learned from uh, this class was how much uh, orchestral writing was really influenced by... Berlioz and Wagner, and Berlioz is early enough where um, and and because he wasn't a super problematic person, even though like he's definitely pretty weird, um, a lot of people aren't going to write off uh, Berlioz, but Wagner is a really interesting case, and in terms of talking about the, uh, especially a lot of the social justice that we want to um, work with now, and, and trying to promote like high quality thinkers, I think it's really important to say um, two things uh, about Wagner. I mean, first, I think he had a tremendous amount of hubris. And as somebody who has studied a lot of German folklore and taught a lot about German folklore, I don't think we should be super surprised by some of his views, because those were very commonplace views in Germany at that time and very much before. And there's a lot of anti-Semitism, especially in Central Europe, uh, historically, Um after, especially after the Spanish Inquisition. Like, that is just a fact of history. So, um, if if we're going to cancel Wagner for having the hubris to write some of those views down, we probably need to start canceling a lot of other musicians uh, at the same time, which obviously is a horrible idea. I think it's far more profound to take an opportunity um, when these pieces come up, and maybe they need to come up a little less often, but... uh, to talk about why this is bad and how um being hateful rips at the fabric of humanity um and that it's important for us to develop a love and understanding of each other if we're going to make powerful profound art um and uh the other thing is uh whether you like it or not the orchestral canon is objectively worse without the work of wagner because he just understood how to write for orchestra so much better. I encountered a student this year um, in one of my classes where we were talking about the idea of Gesamtkunstwerk, which is um, Wagner's uh, term for a complete work of art. Uh, and the reason like he's very interesting is because um, the Gesamtkunstwerk, the total work of art, was like really the first time where they said not only are we going to get like the most wild and crazy story, but we're going to get the, the we're going to get the best composer and the best set designer and the best costume designer, and we're gonna we're gonna build a hall that's specially designed for like these kinds of performances where we can do all kinds of wacky stuff in the set design and bring on all of the crazy props and. Um, we're going to have stuff that's distilled from our folklore so people feel it viscerally. And it's going to be uh, a work of powerful overstimulation because it's going to have immense scope. I mean, when you think about like um, why – like when you distill down the things about why the Marvel Cinematic Universe is powerful because the characters are compelling, We like there are roots in our traditions – uh, about it they they got all of this star power the 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 filmmaking is immaculate the colors are immaculate the music is really compelling um it's all textbook uh in as much as the like the ring cycle is um and for those of you who don't know um the ring of nibelung is a four part um, like a series of operas by Wagner. Each opera is like upwards of three and a half hours, and it's like this very compelling uh, and viscerally moving uh, piece of art about um, all of these elements of classic Norse and German mythology. It's very, it's it's very very interesting stuff, even if it's kind of messed up. Um, but that's just like pagan folklore that it's based on. But all this is to say, like, uh, this is a really powerful thing to be thinking about. Um and so in thinking about like what's what's the purpose of large ensembles and why are we um why are we like really engaging in this way? It's to understand like um and, and why is it powerful to learn about um band and orchestral writing outside of uh, the idea of, like, being able to write for it? Well, firstly, I think more musicians should be able to write for it because um, literacy is a threefold path. You need to be able to read something and internalize it, hear something and write it down, and cognate something, and um, either speak or write it down. Um, And so... uh, The thing that I think a lot of musicians miss is this idea of self-generating ideas from nothing, um, which is exactly what music composition is. And I think part of the reason it's such a problem is when they learn about it, it's in part writing class, because part writing is efficient to teach, um, but it's frustrating to learn until you, like, have an understanding of how to do it in a way that, like, makes writing real music accessible. Um, And it takes a lot of mental energy. And so a lot of people fall away from that. But uh, if we taught more writing and more orchestrating in class, I think we'd actually develop more high-level musicians Uh, because you have to be able to think very critically when you do something like that. And the thing it's been powerful for, for me over this last semester especially is being able to develop a really great idea of looking at a score, and understanding exactly what every instrument is doing at any given time. And in thinking about why um, a composer might choose like a contrabass clarinet, or contrabassoon, or contrabass, to do the job that normally I would associate with the tuba, and why. And the volume of frequencies that come out of an ensemble that have much larger brass sections. And what does that mean? And how does that work? and uh stuff like that having a really as the rock would say an ability to know my role because it's extraordinarily powerful to be able to by just listening to a piece of music know that like especially as a euphonium player oh um i'm unless I'm playing a solo section, nobody is going to tune to me because the beauty of Euphonium, and in a lot of cases saxophone, is that their timbre is so mellow, so rounded, and fairly complex that they blend with just about everything. So you can use those instruments as a way of boosting the gain of uh, or boosting the volume for anybody who doesn't use um, a lot of audio mixing tech. of uh whatever the featured instrument is so especially in military band uh, when you uh have euphonium paired with like a running line in the clarinets the point is to make the clarinet sound louder and this is extraordinarily effective um but as a euphonium player the clarinets ain't never going to listen to you and they can do it at, as brandon jones would say at absolute pianissimo and so, like, like like a true pianissimo. And so you really need to listen up to them in those kinds of a situation. And this comes back to um, one of the masterclasses that I was at at the Mortec, where uh, uh, I heard uh, basically uh, like a who's who of military band euphonium players, um, Mark Jenkins and Brandon Jones specifically. I mean, there were tons of other folks there, um, but both of them talked so much about like The ability to play at true pianissimo efficiently with a good sound is extraordinarily underrated and very frustrating to practice. But that's what separates like good military musicians apart, or or even good musicians in general, good ensemble musicians from others because it really lets you um, showcase your ability uh, as. like a team player in the ensemble, and really contribute to something bigger than yourself. You have a profound understanding of what your role is and how to train for it. And that's the kind of thing, like I think about uh, defensive midfielders on the soccer pitch. That's probably like the most underrated and frustrating role on the pitch. And you run into a lot of like... People who, when they think of defensive midfielders, exclusively think of guys like Angola Conte and Claude Makélélé, for obvious reasons. When you have a destroyer defensive midfielder, who their job is to always make interceptions, make tackles like crazy, win the ball back, and then quickly distribute it. I don't want to reduce those two players because they're extraordinarily effective in just about everything they do. And and N'Golo Kante is a very rare and a very treasured player for a lot of reasons because it's not often that you find a destroyer defensive midfielder who has the eye for goal and the quality of passing that he does. But uh, that's that's such a much more fancy role or a fancy version of that role compared to somebody like Sergio Busquets or Michael Carrick, who are probably two of the most elegant players to ever play the game. And, and that's a very different role than like what Pirlo would do either. And I mean, I'd say Pirlo is much more in the vein of Busquets and uh, Carrick than other things. But um, Busquets and Carrick both... Uh, Cut passing lanes, shield the defense, and distribute the ball effortlessly in in a way I've never seen other people do it. Um if you want kind of a new school idea, I mean obviously Busquets is still playing, but like um if you watch the Premier League and you want somebody to watch to figure that out, Ruben Neves is a great shout. Um but this idea of being able to, like, you never really notice them in the game, but they're super, super important, is th- an immaculate uh, ability to have as as a footballer. Um, there was a time when Nemanja Matic probably played that same role. Obviously, like, he's starting to get really old now. He just doesn't have the legs to, like, cover the ground that he used to. But they're these players that like never really lose the ball. They make, they do all of the simple stuff amazingly. They cut passing lanes like crazy in order to shield the defense, and they help the game move even if they're not controlling the pace of it. And the reason I find Busquets and Carrick to be a similar um, build in that in that case is because. Um, in, if you think about 2009 and 2011 Barcelona, like the two, the two like really, really, really amazing Barcelona teams. Um, Busquets is shielding the midfield so that um, Messi and Xavi can run the game, and Messi can pull back in order to have the midfield diamond that lets them dominate and just create passing triangles all over the place to move the ball efficiently through the thirds of the pitch and score effortlessly because all of these cats have been playing together playing together in the same style for so long. They just have a blindfold-level understanding of what's supposed to happen on the pitch. Uh, and it's, it's very different, but you see a similar thing in Alex Ferguson's um, 99 and 2008 Manchester United teams. Um, in as much as like Roy Keane does all of those same kinds of things, and Yabstam uh, create, he and Yapstem were such a power, and Casper uh, Schmeich – or not Casper Schmeichel, excuse me, Peter Schmeichel were like such a powerful defensive unit, um, in order to control the game. But it, obviously, they're very different eras and very different teams because, um. Uh, 4-4-2 was uh, profoundly more played in in the 90s, and so the 99-2000 Man United team, it, like it, there were just so many things going on, but like uh, Keane being able to truly do everything and be everywhere on the pitch, and he's I think dramatically more similar to Kante than Carrick, but. Uh, Allowing the freedom for Skulls and Beckham to run the game is a very powerful place to be in. Um, Michael Carrick, on the other hand, in the 2009 team, with the shielding that he provides Rio and Vidic, allows them to be, I mean, and and Rio Ferdinand may be one of the best defenders we'll ever see in the history of the game because he's incredibly physical and incredibly powerful as a defender and he never had to use it because he read the game and could pass so well. But um, And Van der Sar is an incredibly underrated keeper. But so you have that that defensive unit sat behind someone who cuts the passing lane and distributes the ball so well so that Rooney and Scholes can curate all of the opportunities that they need to in order to make sure that Ronaldo and Tevez uh, are scoring liberally. And that creates the, the truly powerful team that we see uh, just absolutely run rampant through the Premier League and Europe uh, in 2008. And this ability to like step back from the limelight and understand what your role is is extraordinarily powerful it requires a lot of humility and that's not something you learn in the practice room that's something you learn from like suffering and being human and realizing that like being able to do something in a 70-piece ensemble is an extraordinarily privileged and interesting and joyful thing to be a part of Uh, you've got to live your life in order to figure stuff out like that um but You also need a real reckoning with an understanding of what an orchestra or a band is and how it works. And as Steve Reich would say, really feeling that it's a behemoth of an ensemble and understanding how to handle that um, from a creative perspective gives you a much better idea of how how it works and how it feels. I was talking with Adam Fry at... Um I think it was on Friday or Saturday of the Mortech when we we were up in um the exhibit room and we were talking about like how um how it feels to try new horn. And I said, "You know, it's really interesting. I feel euphoniums and I play euphoniums that um are made by uh builders that aren't the um the one I usually play very differently than I used to, and I think it's because I've taken a few hundred, almost maybe almost a thousand tubes and euphoniums apart and put them back together, like reduce them to piles of tubes and put them put them back together. Um, as uh, part of my career as a repair technician, and you have an understanding of how a euphonium feels and how it works. And what should be effortless and why when you've done that kind of a thing. And what some of the changes that you can make to an instrument physically do. And I, I um, the more time I spend with it, the more time I really think that like um, the same is true of performing in a large ensemble. When you have a really concrete, powerful understanding of what your role is um, because you... I'll have the humility to take a step back and say, this isn't about me, and have a powerful understanding of how that living, breathing organism of a large ensemble works. Um, It puts you in a very powerful place uh, to be a musician in that kind of a group, in that kind of capacity. And this is also why I think it's powerful to be a part of of a group where you're not playing your primary instrument. I spent this last year Uh, playing tuba in an ensemble and playing tuba and playing euphonium are extraordinarily different for obvious reasons I mean they're very different instruments but like the purpose they're used in an ensemble is very different especially in band. like bass lines come from bassoon and tuba and if you don't have a contrabass or a contrabassoon or a contrabass clarinet like tuba is the bass it's, it it's the lowest playing instrument in the ensemble. And so, like, you can create very powerful effects with that if you know how to handle it correctly. The thing is, a lot of band composers don't know how to handle it correctly. To be honest, a lot of, like, uh, composers writing solo and chamber music don't really know how to handle it super well either. Which takes me to, um, actually, another uh, thing I was thinking about at the Mortec. And that's the... Uh, the two in the euphonium could really use more introspective and contemplative solo works that are of high quality and two of the performances that I saw this last weekend that really stood out to me were um, the recitals by uh, Tom Curry who teaches at um, University of Wisconsin in Madison and Dave Zirkle who teaches at University of Michigan and um, Dave's piece day's recital was so powerful he had um a piece uh called uh, a night devoid of stars based on the writing by martin luther king and it was dedicated to um all of the folks that had died from gun violence in the u.s um particularly in the last 20 to 30 years and he did it with the lights off, and it was unaccompanied. And um, there were uh, there was text displayed on the screen behind him about like um, like what the the numbers were, and like how many lives had been lost, because um, there's an insistence to perpetuate violence in the United States. And. Uh, I remember thinking how extraordinarily bold and extraordinarily powerful that was. Uh, And I think we need to take more risks like that as artists if we're going to attain some level of notoriety, uh, because pieces like that are extraordinarily accessible to people who are not from a musical background. Um, And the other piece he played was... um, I don't remember the title. I, I need to go back and look at the program, but it was this very interesting cinematic piece for uh, Tuban Electronics that I liked a lot and that I'm probably going to purchase. And then um, Tom Curry is probably the most interesting tube and Euphonium player I've ever met, and I can't wait to spend more time picking his brain because he's the only other composer-performer that I know of that's performing a lot of the works that he writes in tube and Euphonium. And uh, so Tom... Played uh, three pieces of his own composition that were based on like very eclectic and interesting uh, composition styles. Uh, it was very modern. He had like a hand plunger mute uh, for his tuba that he used. Um, there was I don't think there was any live processing, but there was uh, every piece had lots of electronics with it. Um, loads of extended technique, interesting like kind of uh, pitch class set. Kind of tonality, um, Messian uh, modes of limited transposition, and but the coolest thing was he he talked a little bit before the show, and then he played everything straight down with no applause breaks. It's like being at a live concept album, and I've I've had this idea before, but I'd never really found a good way to do it. And now I'm really starting to think that maybe I need to do at least one recital a year that way because it was so interesting and so powerful and so compelling and. We just need more of that in uh, the Tubin euphonium world. Um, but to go back to the masterclass thing, a couple of other things that I took away. Um, Mark Jenkins talked about the importance of internal pulse and how to train that. Because once pulse becomes something you never have to worry about, you're, that's really the point where you can leave your conscious brain to do all kinds of other stuff. And so having a little bit of time every day where you really spend time working on training your internal clock and the wiring of your brain as a musician is a very powerful place to be in. And I've decided that's something I'm going to spend uh, a, a daily amount of time on going forward because I think it's really underrated and extraordinarily powerful to be able to free your brain that way and... I think this is just one of the first times in my life where I've had the humility to sit back and say like, am I as good at that as I probably could be? Probably not. And I'm thinking about a lot of things with my playing in that regard too. Because um, uh, one of the things that Brandon Jones talked about was the power of sight reading and how like a lot of people don't practice sight reading every day because it's hard, but like uh, if the more high quality of a sight reader you become, the less music you have to learn, and it actually pays dividends down the line. And this comes back to uh, something i realized in my personal life from some of the stuff I have going on, is that like, at some point you have to make sacrifices, and nothing in your life that's really, really worth doing is almost ever easy. Because if you want to be an interesting and compelling human being, there needs to be some complexity. And you're probably going to need to do some work in order to get there. So all of this is to say, like, I'm planning to sight read more this summer um, and actually going, uh, it's going, I'm, I'm making more of an effort to make it part of my daily routine and not just easy stuff either. I mean like, yeah, I'm going to start with like going through all the rest of the Bordoni books that I haven't gone through already, but um, uh, I have a duet book that's like duets in 16th notes. I'm planning to do those at pace, basically trying to get a hold of anything that I can in order to really try to start hardwiring my brain uh, to get to a place where it, a lot of this is a lot more is a lot more ready access. And then my, the cognition of my musicality and my internal pulse and um, not just like how to operate my instrument efficiently, but how to operate my instrument efficiently even if I'm looking at new music for the first time. And a devoid, uh, like divorcing this idea of like, um, I need my conscious brain to think about the optimal functioning of my instrument uh which takes me to um another very interesting thing that happened this weekend i had the opportunity with my friend uh nelson Pardo to help um an undergraduate student really try to pick uh, an f tuba that was a good f tuba for them and there were three or four we were going between and we had managed to sequester ourselves in a quiet place where we could really hear them and you know, it's really interesting. Nelson was one of the first people I've ever heard say, like, you want to try... Like, the beauty of having an exhibit hall full of tubas where you can try everything is that this is the time where um, you can really start to hone in on the thing that's a good fit for you and make the investment uh, now so that you don't have to hopefully buy another F-Tuba ever again. Which I thought was very powerful. There's a lot of people I know who change tubas a lot. And... Um, This idea of like working your way to like your forever horn instead of like finding, like trying a bunch, finding one that's a good fit for you and investing. And going forward, I really think I'm going to pursue this latter method instead, Um, even though I've taken kind of the other one for finding the two, but that's a good fit for me. Um, But uh, it was so fascinating um, really working with The student and trying to figure out something that not only helped them resonate with the horn that seemed like it fit their their physical size very well that it was um something they could operate efficiently and that sounded really good and it was really interesting because they had one tuba that they felt like oh this one um feels easier to play and one that definitely sounded easier to play and it's really interesting because like in reality, you want to go with the one that sounds easiest to play because, like, the obviously your sound is better. Um, and uh, it turned into, like, this really kind of I think, seemingly overwhelming conversation about, like, what's good versus what isn't, and, like, how do you tell a resident tuba from a non-resident tuba? And, like, it it was weird having the sales rep there, too, trying to talk us into, like, obviously, because it's important for him to make a sale, so he wants to, like, really get uh, this guy convinced that, like, investing in a tuba is something that's good for him, which it kind of would be. But it's interesting talking about how, um, like... It's different than trying on a suit, I think, in that like when you try on a suit, there's a case to be made that like the most you'll ever like it is like when you first see it in the mirror, first see it on your body. I think to an extent that's true, I think there's a little bit of leeway because if um, you wear something that maybe you don't think you look the best in, but a lot of other people think you look really good in it and they give you a lot of compliments and they tell you you look hot, honestly, you're probably going to wear it more and you're going to like it more because it feels good. In as much as like... Maybe you aren't the biggest fan of how easy this F-Tuba is to play at the beginning, but that's also your first time playing it, and it's different than your F-Tuba that you've ever played, or the one that you own, or maybe any F-Tuba that you've ever played, so like, maybe stuff doesn't slot efficiently right away. I mean, you want to find something that you can intuitively understand very quickly. That's very powerful. But if it sounds very, very good right away, that's a great place to be in. Because you don't want to go from a place where you like sound gross to sound good because that's very difficult, especially if you have a really great sound already. You want to find something that makes it easiest to sound like yourself. And so trying to toy that middle line of like what is both that's easy and intuitive to operate and sounds easy and intuitive to operate is funky, and it's different for everybody because everybody's built different but uh in this kind of a situation it was very interesting because uh the thing that like trying to convince somebody that toying that line is what they need to find is difficult for a lot of reasons because um, a lot of people just want things to be easy right away but because no two tubas, like even if you had two PT6s they're going to fundamentally play differently than one another because they were assembled differently even if like the tiniest amount differently than, than each other and so um, can you develop an extraordinarily extraordinary level of consistency with a high level of craftsmanship? absolutely, but they're still cut from different metal tempered slightly differently at different times of the day with craftsmen that were at different levels of concentration or self-fulfillment or whatever like a friday horn versus a monday horn might be very very different as they would say in the manufacturing industry and so um you want to find the one that's a good fit for you and um like the mathematics of how like wide the tubes are and how um like whether it's a rotor or a piston horn, all of that is a factor. Uh, and so trying to find, um, I mean, if you want to get super nitty-gritty between, like, individual models of the same horn, you can, but, like, you're, you get a much more specific target when um, you can just narrow it down to model and brand and stuff, you know? And so, um, but because all of the mathematics are different, um, your brain needs to fundamentally recalculate all of the passive calculations it does when you execute and phonate sound on that horn. And this is the break-in period that people talk about. And there's all these like crazy um, like old wives tales about how to like get your horn past the break-in period. I heard somebody literally tell a student one time you should fill your horn with buttermilk and then clean it in order to get past the break-in period. And if you want to tell yourself that story, fine. Because the human brain responds to narrative like nothing else. If you want to tell yourself that kind of story to get past whatever kind of break-in period your horn might have, see if it works. But what I can guarantee you is, especially if you're going from two horns that have a lot of things that are very different about them, your brain will have to change a lot of the passive calculations it makes in its subconscious brain in order to make that happen the amount and, and and to give you an idea of this like if you go to like a moderately advanced physics class and talk about the physics of throwing like a tennis ball and all of the spin and all of the curvature and like how you need to know in order to exactly predict where the tennis ball will land the amount of math that has to be done in order to predict that perfectly Your brain does all of that in a few seconds just by, like, you throwing a ball. And obviously you can get better at it because your brain is better at making those passive calculations. The idea that playing tuba or euphonium or any instrument is any different than that is ridiculous because they're all motor skills. So your brain needs to recalculate all of these passive calculations in order to in order to get to a point where you feel at home on this horn, and if it but if it vibes with your body and how you make horns resonate right away, and it's a well built instrument, it will be easier to do something like that, and that's why um, being really choosy about a horn and making sure that it's a good investment for you is so powerful, and that's how you find a horn that fits you. A lot of people really don't talk about this, uh, and I, it was something that. I think it was really important to codify in something like this, where like, people can come back and listen to this for posterity, because nobody's going to articulate it just like that. But it's very powerful. And the way we were able to get an F-tuba that worked really well for this person is um, we narrowed it down to the two that were the easiest for him to play, and then there was one where uh, the tests that we did, we just because we're playing F-tuba, we just had them play an F-major scale. And uh, we went up and went down, um, like starting in middle F, going all the way up and all the way down. And then, once that happened, uh, and we had like an idea of, okay, this one feels easiest in all of the usable range of the tuba, great, let's go to pedal F. And which was the easiest to slot on every note on the way down? And then, for me, the one that was the real decider was when they played pedal F, And there was one tuba that sounded good and one that sounded good and was so in tune when he played it That you could hear the third buzzing in a load of the lights and lockers in the hallway we were in And it's like, for me, the idea that you would buy any tuba that isn't that one is ridiculous Because that sounds so good and so resonant and so in tune already And it's only up from here It's gotta be that one and those are the tiny little things that I like to look at when I'm uh, thinking about something like that. Uh, I had a conversation with Dan Parentoni after his uh, masterclass for um, the uh, a bunch of the tuba um, solo uh, competition artists. And it was really interesting listening to him talk in the masterclass about how... Um, I talked about earlier about like this idea of being able to cognate um, your musical ideas if you can sing them and be like having like a uniformity to between what's going on in your head and what's going on in the horn. But one of the things that he talked about was like being able to dance your music also. And that was something I found very powerful because um, when I was teaching pre-k through five uh, the year before I came to grad school, um, I learned a lot about uh, how honest especially young children are and I think a lot of it is because they haven't been taught to be ashamed of themselves which adults are very good at teaching. Uh, and so there are a lot of people who when I say like can you sing and dance this idea that's on the page They look at me and they say like that That's ridiculous or whatever and like Dan Parentoni asks the exact same thing of one of the students in this class It's like well, I mean are you really emotionally invested if you can't do that? It's like young kids they don't like they just tell you if they're emotionally invested in something if they like it or if they don't like it and that's very powerful and some people Um, exclusively relate that to like their physical speech, which is obviously a really easy way of seeing that. But in reality, they're very honest with their actions too, because they're not bashful. They haven't, they don't understand that like the world is a judgmental place. They are just very joyful. And there's a, a power in getting back to that and being able to show that you're emotionally invested. And being able to bring all of that power into our music making is a place i think people really need to get back to because that's compelling art making and i think something to supplement that is and i've talked about this in the podcast before but this idea of like input and output being directly proportional which comes to um really kind of the the last big portion of this podcast. Um, The last thing I really took away from Mortec, which is there is a serious split right now in terms of um, whether or not you should be talking about um, how musicians should take care of themselves. Uh, And I've been thinking about this for a while. And part of the reason there's a lot of problems with this right now is because we don't have hard codified evidence that this is actually helpful everything is anecdotal which is actually a very powerful place to start because if we have a number of people who are saying I made these lifestyle changes and it created a situation where everything about my own trust in myself my personal satisfaction my creative freedom and my playing all improved um, the question then becomes like well why isn't everybody doing this and in one part it's because it's really difficult but also like evidence is anecdotal So it's hard to really like have hard proof of something as opposed to like if we had academic articles that would like actually prove this. But uh, there were a few conversations that I had um, over the course of this last weekend that really affirmed my desire to try to codify this. And I'll talk about this in a later episode of how I plan to do it because that's going to be my the project for my doctoral dissertation, I think, because I'm at a really close um, place right now where I think I figured out how exactly I would want to run the project. I just need to get stuff funded and see if um, my advisor would sign off on that kind of a project. And like if that's something I could really do at University of Illinois. I really think it is, but that's a question for another time. Um, But so um, I had a conversation with somebody about how um, they are... Afraid for the physical health of um, the next generation of tuba and euphonium players that are coming up right now. So people between the ages of 18 and 27 uh, approximately because um, this artist seemed to think that um, the joke that they made was this is the emergence of type 2 diabetes, which was extraordinarily funny because they also articulated that like I know that's a terrible thing to say, but I'm genuinely concerned for their physical health. And like, what is that going to cause as far as inflammation going forward in terms of like the quality of playing and that you're able to do and the longevity of your playing career? And the sad truth is, is like, they're absolutely right. Um, is, I don't remember, I need to look up the article again, but, um, this year there was a study that was published that said moderate uh cardio exercise five days a week for a half an hour is associated with a 500 percent reduction in all-cause mortality and that's extraordinarily powerful information so in being able to communicate that and also having a good understanding of like if input is equal to output like That means, like, the healthier you are physically, the better your output will be because you're able to put in more of yourself and expect more of yourself on the input, and that means you get more on the output. And um, when you have a degree of physical health, it's also easier to pursue a degree of emotional health because you have an idea of, like, what suffering is, and you can have some equanimity in moving through that and have the trust and courage and self-confidence in yourself to say like, I'm not willing to be a part of something that's codependent. And then when things are both joyful, uh, and fulfilling, it's easier to express that. And in as much as like, you want things to be joyful and fulfilling. True joy and true fulfillment, as I talked about in the last episode, is only really in existence in contrast to profound suffering and profound sadness because you have to have the contrast between those things in order to really understand and appreciate like what your life means and how to express that. And so, like... This goes back to what I said earlier. Like things that are worth doing in your life must be difficult. They just have to be in order for you to appreciate them. And so, uh, being able to really have a good idea of that about that is really powerful. And then uh, I had a conversation with um, uh, Danny Chapa about like, well, okay, so where where should we best start to codify these things? And. Rest and nutrition and um, like like a good sense of physical health are all really great places to start. But I think personal development is another one too. And so like having a study where we can see like yes or no, does doing these things improve or um, take away from your ability to improve as a musician and as a tuba and euphonium operator? And then being able to isolate all of the variables so we can codify like if you were going to start tomorrow, what would be the first thing you should do? And then what should you do by next week, by the next three weeks, by the next month, by the next three months, by the next half year, by the next year? So you can actually create a step-by-step process to like of... goals that are vague enough that they're achievable but specific enough that trackable will be extraordinarily helpful to actually proving that any of these conversations actually matters and i am of the opinion that because all of our evidence is anecdotal right now it's like yeah i mean it's going to be you still need to have conversations about it and if enough people have anecdotes that like all of these things help them. People will listen, but until we have hard data and mathematical evidence that any of this is actually helpful to what we're doing as musicians, um, every like musician wellness program that's at any university is virtue signaling. Because like, you can't just say like, "Oh, we gave you a class like." And so you have these skills to improve. It's like, no, we have hard evidence that like this is what this looks like. And then when inevitably that's not happening, you can say like, well, I'm overworked and underslept, so it's no wonder that I hate myself. Because that's an extraordinarily common state of mind right now. That's something I felt. That's something a lot of my peers have felt, especially recently. Uh, And so like... Having, having hard data that we can actually measure things against is not only powerful for us to give us a pathway to what is a better place for us to be living in a optim- more optimal state of, of living and health, but also gives us a, a measuring stick for what we're willing to um, accept as far as circumstances. And think about like, I try to codify like what is overworking? and do we feel do we feel unfulfilled by our art form because we don't like our art form or because our life is mathematically unsustainable which brings us to another conversation that I had at MoreTech um with an artist who is very much of the opinion that like Not only will no tuba or euphonium player want to listen to this, but none of that matters because everything is in the mind. And I don't think this person could be any more wrong. I think it's very easy to give up yourself to indulgence. And you know what? Those people don't have to read this book. But there's a lot of people who I think would fundamentally make lifestyle changes if it meant that they would feel better in their body and... Enjoy their life more. And probably pay dividends on how efficiently they operate their instrument. And acquire the motor skill that is operating an instrument. And prevent injuries from over practicing. And when I say that, I don't mean like you can over practice and not develop injuries. Some people just have that amount of stamina already. What I'm saying is they figure out where their limits are so that over practicing isn't something they ever have to worry about. And then suddenly you have more time in your life to do things that you really enjoy. And not saying you don't really enjoy practicing. I'm sure a lot of folks do. Uh, I definitely do. I just love playing my horn. But like practicing is tough for some people. And so how can you have better literacy about what you need specifically so you can draw those boundaries so that your relationship with your instrument isn't codependent? And that's where like this beauty of like being able to express things that are unconditional and joyful and fulfilling will come in. And I want to codify this. And that, I think that's going to be my, uh, my doctoral project. And uh, I need to sort out a lot of what's um, going on behind the scenes with that right now. There's a lot of people, especially in tuba and euphonium, who could really use that. But I'm thinking also about like, I mean, there's so many conductors and string players who spend so much time working on um, like the physicality of their movement that they develop tendonitis, um, or they that they have muscle injuries. And a lot of uh, a lot of tendonitis is usually a result of the fact that like um, not only overused, but like your muscles ha- aren't firing and supporting everything that's going on, and so you end up passing. Uh, that's dressed to your ligaments instead. And uh, to be honest, stretching and yoga and a little more sleep alone would probably solve a lot of those problems, especially with those particular disciplines. But uh, again, that's that's kind of a different conversation. But also, until we have more hard data from uh, a diverse set of uh, people and musicians, I don't know that we'll really be able to have uh, profound conversations about this. And that's why I want to prove it mathematically. And it's very interesting because I've never felt so convicted about something. Uh, and I... This... This is very fascinating because having... Having somebody look me in the eye and say, I don't think anything about what you're talking about as far as musician health is something people will care about or matters. Uh was exactly what I needed to hear to know that this is exactly what I should be doing. Because the old guard, um, they're not worried about this. And while the like a truly amazing artist in the old guard is one in a million, um, an artist in the new guard, if this quality of pedagogy is dispersed, is not only going to be, that not only is their lifestyle going to be more sustainable, um, there will be more of them, and it's it's better for classical music and for art in general to be able to do these things. And I'm at the point now where I've realized that not only should this happen, it must happen, and it feels good. And I don't know that I've ever trusted Andrew like this before, and it feels really great. Um, it's been a powerful episode today. I hope that some of the ideas I've talked about are um, are new for some people because uh, I don't know anybody else who quite thinks about like developing as a musician this way. Uh, but I hope this is really helpful for you. And I really enjoyed sharing everything that I learned from the conference uh, on the podcast today. So uh, that's all for this week. Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Musical Trek Artista, the podcast. You can find us online at mcgowanmusic.com or listen on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit us at Andrew McGowan on YouTube or Music McGowan on Instagram.